Omega Tau. Science and Engineering in your headphones. Hello, welcome to a new episode of Omega Tau. In this episode, we are talking about something that is uh, much less close to my, um, well, core skills <laughs> than some of the episodes we've had recently. We talk about CRISPR, gene editing with CRISPR-Cas9. Our guest is Sam Sternberg, who runs a research lab at Columbia University, where he's also a professor. We'll get to that in a moment. Um, before we do that, I want to briefly mention two things. First, we'll have a listener meetup on October 8 in Braunschweig. So if you are in the Braunschweig area, then send us an email, feedback at omegatarpodcast.net, um, so we can organize um, where we meet and uh, how we find each other. And, uh, you know, it's going to be in the evening, 7, 7.30. We'll clarify the details if we know who will join us. October 8 in Braunschweig. <clears throat> the other thing I wanted to mention is that a little while ago, I have been asking around for people who want to help us um, being paid for uh, being some kind of an editorial assistant, I think we called it. And we actually did find somebody, and we have been working with him for a while. His name is Ono Tunch. He has mostly been working on social media stuff. For example, this episode of the week thing that he has been seeing recently popping up on the various social media channels. That was his idea and his work. So uh, this is uh, very helpful for us and a good thing. Um, so uh, if you kind of would please virtually welcome Ono to the team. <laughs> All right. So let's get started with today's episode with uh, Sam's introduction. My name is Sam Sternberg. Um, I just started my laboratory at Columbia University a few months ago. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics. And uh, one of the things you work with is uh, CRISPR-Cas9, right? Um, I have worked on CRISPR-Cas9. Actually, one of the directions my lab is going is into other flavors of CRISPR systems, so mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get into that. Yep. But the work I did in my PhD with Jennifer, Jennifer Doudna, was largely focused on the Cas9 enzyme. All right. So usually CRISPR and Cas9 are kind of used together, or maybe the Cas9 is dropped. People only call it CRISPR, but it's not quite the same thing, and we'll, we'll figure that out during the conversation. Yeah, no, I think many of the, the crisp, hardcore CRISPR biologists are sometimes a little bit annoyed because the term CRISPR is now used as kind of an umbrella term for everything under the sun, even though it really refers to a more specific feature um, that's separate from Cas9, but for the technology that's emerged from this area of biology, it's obviously useful for scientists and journalists to use one simplified term for everything. Yeah. So then what is CRISPR? <laughs> can you give us a 10,000-foot uh, high-level overview and we can then dive into the details? Sure. Well, I'll define the acronym first. That yeah. will not give you the big picture view because the acronym's pretty confusing for most people, even scientists. Uh -huh. uh, the term stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. All right. Thank um, you. Uh, let's talk. Yeah. <laughs> now we can finish the conversation. Yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> um, that was coined in 2002. I actually met the uh, the Dutch scientist a couple years ago who coined the term. Um, and it's kind of fun to follow the history of how these were described in the scientific literature before 2002, because there were probably half a dozen different acronyms that preceded CRISPR. 
One was Spider or SPDR. There mm-hmm. was just DR. There was SRSR. So kind of if you go deep into the literature, you can find early descriptions of what we now call CRISPRs um, going back to 1987. Mm-hmm. Um, the 10,000-foot view on what CRISPRs are are specialized regions of bacterial genomes, which have a bunch of repeating sequences, um, the same 20 to 30 letters of DNA repeating over and over, separated by short intervening sequences. Um, and for many years, it was actually a mystery what these are doing, but the, the acronym was coined before we actually understood the answer to that question, just to describe this repeating pattern of DNA that was being detected in many, many different sequenced bacterial and archaeal genomes. Okay, so CRISPR doesn't tell us anything about what this is doing or what it's used for. It describes a pattern of genes. Not even of genes. It describes a pattern of little snippets of DNA. Um, There are genes associated with CRISPR, and those are actually called CAS for CRISPR-associated genes. Mm -hmm. Those encode proteins, including the Cas9, which is now famous for gene editing, But the CRISPR itself, speaking very technically, um, is not a gene at all. It's a series of repeating sequences. And we now know that those repeating sequences, and in particular the spacers separating those repeating sequences, those are are basically guiding bacteria and archaea, a different single-celled prokaryotic organism. They're telling these bacteria how to defend themselves against invading pathogens like viruses. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So before we dive deeper, I think we should define slash repeat for our listeners a couple of terms because they might not be familiar with, a, you know, biology at that level. Um, so maybe let's start with a gene. A gene is, if I remember correctly, um, like a one of four, a two-bit information, right? It can, use, it can have four values, right? Uh, I'd say that's DNA. So DNA has four different letters, A, G, C, and T. And genes are long stretches of DNA that contain the information coding for proteins. They can code for molecules of RNA. So there are different RNAs that are coded by genes. So a gene is a length of DNA that encodes some biomolecule that cells utilize in some way. All right. Um, Most of the time when we talk about genes, we're talking about stretches of DNA that have the information to produce a specific protein. Okay, all right. So I got it the wrong way. I was going to try. I was going to define DNA the way, yeah, the other way around. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. All right. So um, you mentioned the word RNA or the abbreviation RNA. Right. So RNA is sometimes colloquially referred to as DNA's molecular cousin. So mm-hmm. DNA, the acronym stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. RNA is the same thing without the deoxy. So it's just ribonucleic acid. Mm-hmm. It's a similar polymer. Um, it also can encode genetic information. There are, in fact, many viruses that have their genetic information stored as RNA, not DNA. Mm-hmm. And importantly for us, DNA can be copied into a more kind of temporary photocopy molecule called RNA. And those RNAs are often used for various functions. So, for example, the central dogma of molecular biology posits that the flow of genetic information is from DNA 
to RNA to protein. Mm-hmm. So if you actually talk about how genes end up producing a protein, the genes are first copied or transcribed is the technical term yeah. into a, a molecule of RNA. And then the RNA is translated using the genetic code into protein. Okay. And protein is? Protein is another polymer. It's made up of amino acids. Um, important to recognize that, you know, many times for non-scientists, when we hear protein, we think of that, you know, thing on the uh, nutritional information yeah. panel of something we might eat. It, you yeah. know, it tells you how many grams of protein are in this this uh, candy bar or this this uh, snack. Um, when I talk about proteins, I'm talking about specific molecules inside of the cell and every protein has a different molecular function mm-hmm. um, so proteins can copy dna proteins can break down different molecules into, and convert them to energy proteins can help power the energy producing factories of the cell pretty much everything we think about cells doing is mostly enabled by proteins okay so so dna stores so very very high level dna stores information rni transports slash replicates that information protein does stuff different proteins do different things yeah i think that's a pretty good that's a pretty good overview yeah and enzymes i think that's the last word we might need they can be proteins technically they can be rna as well um RNA can function as an enzyme, but basically an enzyme is a protein that can do some kind of chemistry. Mm -hmm. It can catalyze some type of chemical reaction. So again, that might be converting one food source into a simple sugar as a way of generating energy. It could be cutting DNA. So an enzyme like Cas9, coming back to CRISPR, it's an enzyme, it's a protein enzyme that um, can cut a molecule of DNA into two pieces. All right. Okay. Okay. So, all right. So, CRISPR is essentially a, a bunch of DNA sequences that repeat. We said that before. Yep. So, so what's the big deal? <laughs> what was the breakthrough? <laughs> so, maybe before we get to the breakthrough, yeah. I think it's important to make sure it's clear that there's the field of CRISPR Cas biology, which is focused on understanding the function and how the mechanism of function of CRISPRs in nature, so in bacteria, and that's going to get us talking about viruses and immune defense systems. And then, of course, the thing that has put CRISPR on the map and made it a kind of popular term in the lay media now is, of course, CRISPR technology, where we can utilize different components from naturally occurring CRISPR systems, but put them in a completely new environment, like a human cell or a plant cell, to carry out gene editing. Right. Okay, let's start with the naturally occurring one then. Sure. So I'd say the breakthrough in CRISPR-Cas biology was the discovery in 2007 that what these repeating sequences and the spacers in between the repeating sequences are actually doing are telling bacteria, giving them a way to identify and destroy pathogens like viruses during an infection. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it's actually the, the sequences in between the repeats that are literally copies of viral DNA that bacteria store ah. in their own genome. So the CRISPRs <laughs> are like a, kind of a molecular vaccination card yeah. where sequences from viral DNA are preserved so that during a future infection, 
the bacteria has a copy of that virus's DNA that it can use to sense this is something I've already seen and destroyed before. It must be bad. Let me utilize an enzyme to destroy the DNA from that virus. So so to you, what I'm going to say will sound totally the wrong way around, but I'm going to say it, it works exactly like, like antivirus software <laughs> in that it stores the virus patterns so that it can recognize them when they occur as an infection in the software. And of course, the analogy of antivirus software is taken exactly from what you explained. Yeah, no, I love that. I think there's a <laughs> lot of interesting analogies. I mean, but we can talk about read and write and, yeah. you know, when we talk about gene editing later on, but I think that's absolutely correct. All right, so, so it's not the repeating sequences that are interesting it's what's encoded between them they're almost like a shell to store these virus dna absolutely yeah so and that was actually one of the earlier breakthroughs in 2005 um three different research laboratories made the discovery that it's the sequences in between the repeats we call them spacers they often are perfect matches to known viral genomes and so that was the first hint that led to the hypothesis that maybe the repeats and the spacers and importantly the genes next to them the crispr associated or cas genes mm-hmm. are functioning like this um, immune system this is a defense system that might defend against the infection from that virus mm-hmm. and then it was in the 2007 study that actually proved this um, working with a bacterium called streptococcus thermophilus which um, the yogurt industry had a lot of interest in making more virus resistant because, mm-hmm. of course, if you're culturing liters and liters of milk to turn it into yogurt, you want to make sure that your bacterial cultures aren't dying from infection. Yeah. So, so far, what I understood is that um, CRISPR essentially stores uh, a cell's defense system, immune system, against known virus DNA. Um, you mentioned that the CAS proteins are also important. You, you didn't mention them so far. How do they play into this um, kind of cellular defense story? Right. So what we've discussed so far is that the spacers between the repeats match the viral DNA, and yeah. that's the way that the bacteria can recognize a molecule of DNA entering the cell as pathogenic and destroy it. Yeah. But in terms of how it does the recognizing, how it does the destroying, that is the work of enzymes. Mm -hmm. And there are genes called CRISPR-associated or Cas genes that encode the necessary enzymes to accomplish all of those molecular tasks that we just talked about. Mm -hmm. So using the DNA information from the CRISPR, that actually gets copied into RNA. So we talked about RNA earlier. So the RNA is actually the the guide that helps the enzymes to recognize a matching DNA in the viral genome during an mm-hmm. infection. And then there are Cas enzymes, such as Cas9, that can use the guide RNA, use the match to the DNA, and then activate the degradation or the breakage of that DNA as a way to basically destroy the virus before it can replicate inside the host. All right. And h- how that works is probably uh, a little bit, I don't know. I mean, the the fact that that some protein can kind of attack a virus and and cut things or or otherwise destroy it. Do, do we know how this? I mean, we don't have to go into it, but do we know how this actually works? Like, why do they do the cutting? I mean, can we? Can, is that is is why even a good question to ask here? 
Yes. Why? How? When? Yeah. These are all the questions that were basically one of the core parts of my PhD. And <laughs> I would have failed in that PhD if I couldn't answer them for you. <laughs> so, so we know to a very great level of detail exactly how this works, why it works, mm-hmm. when it doesn't work, how to make it work better. So these are all things that have been obviously critical for understanding how these immune systems work. But then more importantly, or, or maybe equally importantly, um, how we can use that information to make these kinds of tools for yeah. gene editing. So we know how it looks in three-dimensional space. We know how many matches you need between the RNA and the DNA for to recognize something mm-hmm. as foreign and actually cut it versus something that might be similar but not be an exact match, which would leave untouched. Um, we know how fast it cuts the DNA. We know what parts of the protein do the cutting. We know how to block the cutting. I mean, we, this is understood for Cas9 in a great amount of detail. Okay. And, and Cas9, the fact that it has the number 9, is just it's a numbering scheme, right? Exactly. So um, actually, I have at home with me a deck of playing cards that an institute in Berkeley put together where each card has a different Cas protein on it. <laughs> so Cas9 is the, well, it's not the ninth one because they're not really numbered sequentially from when they were discovered, but it just got the name Cas9. There's a Cas1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, mm-hmm. and 13. Um, there may be a 14 that was actually just presented at a conference, although that'll depend on whether or not the field accepts another numbering. Um, but then it's really important to stress that there are many other CRISPR-associated proteins that have different names that don't even fall within Cas1 wow. through 14. So I think the bottom line is, you know, we might talk mostly about Cas9 in this conversation, yep. but there's actually an incredible diversity of CRISPR-Cas systems. And so whereas Streptococcus dermophilus might use Cas9 as one of its primary enzymes for recognizing and destroying viral DNA, there are many, many bacteria that use completely different kinds of Cas enzymes to achieve the same outcome, which is destroying foreign DNA. All right. One last question before we move on to the kind of breakthrough and the use of CRISPR-Cas9. Cas um, does the human um, immune system store um, use the same approach of storing uh, viral DNA in this kind of approach? That's a really fascinating question. Um, I think it would be a mega discovery if anyone <laughs> found any relics okay. of CRISPR-Cas systems outside of bacteria and archaea. Thus far, there have been no analogs to CRISPR-Cas systems identified that are directly evolutionarily related. In terms of a functional, you know, functionally related system, I'd say the the adaptive immune system that utilizes antibodies is similar in some ways in that we we have proteins called antibodies that can recognize different markers from viruses and other pathogens, bacterial pathogens, and they need to also recognize those very specifically and then use that as a trigger to destroy that pathogen. Mm -hmm. So we have our own form of adaptive immunity, but it doesn't utilize stored snippets of the foreign DNA from that pathogen. We have other immune systems that recognize foreign DNA, foreign RNA, but none of those utilize enzymes that are direct ancestral links to the CRISPR-Cas systems in bacteria and archaea. Okay. All right. So then, um, 
when we look at why the so i mean this is interesting from the perspective of understanding how immune systems work at least in bacteria like we just talked about that it's not directly relevant how it works in humans so but that's like probably one area of research just to understand this but then the big thing the big deal was that um crispr cas9 can be used for genome editing right that's absolutely right so um in around 2012, the field of CRISPR-Cas biology intersected with a field that's decades old um, that we could call gene editing. It kind of used to be called gene targeting, but kind of a general approach by which one would seek to make genetic changes to specific regions of the genome of cells like human cells that you might be growing or culturing in a laboratory or mouse cells, or primate cells, or plant cells, cells from eukaryotes that have kind of a slightly more complicated structure than bacterial cells, which don't store the genome in a separate compartment, the nucleus. So basically for, for decades, scientists have been trying to develop methods for making pinpointed changes to the genome. Mm -hmm. And one of the big limiting factors was developing what we call programmable nucleases. So a nuclease, let's talk a couple more terms. Yeah. A nuclease is a specific enzyme that can cleave or cut RNA or DNA. Mm -hmm. And so it turns out that there was some kind of seminal discoveries in the 70s that indicated that actually one of the stimuli for DNA repair is the presence of a break in the DNA. So in other words, if the DNA is broken, as can happen from chemical mutagens, from UV light, I mean, we, we suffer breaks in our genome all the time. Yeah. Um, and our cells actually have a large number of repair enzymes that can repair those kinds of double-strand breaks. Mm -hmm. But if you have a way to control the way those breaks are repaired, you have a technology with which you can edit the genome in a very rational way. So instead of repairing, you insert other stuff, essentially. Exactly. You can insert things, you can delete things, you know, there's a bunch of different things you could do, but the first thing you need to do is find a way to break the DNA in a very specific location. Yep. And so scientists since the 90s have been trying to design programmable nucleases, meaning enzymes that mm -hmm. cut DNA, but that are programmable, that you could design to target any gene you might be interested in editing. And Previous technologies, which are still around and still work quite well, two of the main ones are called ZFNs and TALENS, mm -hmm. um, two new acronyms or two more acronyms. Yeah. They basically work by using a protein-based programmable nuclease. So the idea is you re-engineer a protein to bind a specific DNA sequence, and then you fuse it to a separate protein that actually cuts the DNA. Mm -hmm. And these tools work great but they're a huge pain to re-engineer to target new sequences. So the, the programming is too hard, is what you're saying? The programming is too hard. Um, very, very difficult because for every new DNA sequence, you have to completely mm -hmm. engineer the protein from scratch again. Mm -hmm. And the success rate is low. Often many of the designs would fail or would not work for, for unknown reasons. And so this meant that gene editing remained a technology that was out of reach for most laboratories unless you had significant expertise already in the lab or you had a lot of money to pay a company to design a custom nuclease for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, when CRISPR came along, 
you know, what you had was actually a system that has evolved to do exactly yep. what gene editors wanted to do, which is target and cut specific sequences of DNA. And from the work after 2007 that was aimed at understanding exactly how Cas9 works, coming back to your how, why, when, we knew that if you have a guide RNA that matches a specific sequence of DNA, Cas9 will home to that sequence in the genome and cut it at a defined location, and that if you just change the sequence of the guide RNA, you can have it cut a completely different sequence of DNA, but that there's always this very perfect match between the guide RNA that Cas9 works with and the DNA it cuts. And so the big discovery in 2012 was let's use Cas9 and the guide RNA, pull it outside of bacteria, put it into human cells, plant cells, animal cells, and use it as the way to introduce those DNA breaks so that we can access gene editing in a far easier, far more programmable way, where instead of re-engineering the protein, we keep the protein the same and we just change the letters of the guide RNA. And that is, this is much easier to do. That is so easy to do, yes. So that's the really important thing to stress that um, I told you earlier that, that RNA is often kind of called colloquially DNA's molecular cousin. Yeah. And that's because RNA, like DNA, has four building blocks. They're virtually the same, A, T, G, and C. The yeah. only difference is that the T is a U. Okay. Um, <laughs> but basically the letters, the, the core letters are the same and RNA can form base pairs with DNA, just like the base pairs that hold the double helix together. Mm -hmm. And making new sequences of RNA is completely trivial in terms of accomplishing that in the laboratory. Actually, you can just buy, I mean, nowadays you can just buy the RNA from a company. It'll be shipped virtually the next day, or you can make it yourself in a lab. It's a very, very easy and quick reaction. So making new guide RNAs to target new sites in the genome becomes basically something that you can accomplish in minutes. Okay. So when you say you can order this from a company, what you tell them then, I guess, is the, the sequence of, quote, letters, and then that's what you get. Exactly. So you mm -hmm. would just have the gene that you might want to make an edit to. Yeah. You can find a region of that gene that you want to target with Cas9, and then you copy that sequence into RNA, which, like I told you, is literally just the same letters, except yeah. T becomes U. Yeah. And then you enter that online in an order form. Right. And a week later, you get the RNA in the mail, and you can directly use that to do gene editing in a human cell. Yeah. When you say T becomes U, what you mean is it's a different chemical, but it plays exactly the same role in terms of encoding information. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. All right. Good. All right. So... Um, Let's play this through. I, I want you just said I, you want to edit something. You the first thing you need to figure out is the the DNA you want to change or cut, I guess, right? So you but you assume you know that because you already understand that part of the genome because that is what drives your motivation to do cutting in the first place, right? I mean, so it's not a problem to figure out what the gene sequence is, the DNA is, because presumably you know that's why you want to edit. Exactly, and you know, for something like the human genome, we now have known the sequence of the human genome for over a decade. And increasingly, we're, you know, patients are having genome sequenced or regions of the genome sequenced um, that might suffer from genetic disease. Researchers are sequencing the genomes of cancers and tumors. Yeah. 
So, you know, we're kind of in the genomics era when this is becoming really, really powerful to, to use genomic information as a way to think about biology, think about disease, think about new ways of treating disease. So if we put gene editing in the context of a potential way that you might treat disease, um, let's say in the case of a genetic disease like beta thalassemia or sickle cell, we know exactly what kinds of mutations can cause those diseases. So maybe you want to use CRISPR, you want to target Cas9 to edit and repair the exact mutations that we know can cause these diseases. Yeah. You know, we can go online, there are different servers where you can view and analyze the genome and directly copy and paste those sequences into RNA to, to carry out some kind of an editing experiment. Mm -hmm. the, the fundamental problem that many parts of the genome are uh, like involved in many different expressed behaviors or expressed phenomena, that, that problem is still there, right? So there isn't necessarily a huge amount of things where we know deterministically this change in the genome will have that visible effect. That's correct. Um, and this is still a, a huge area of research yeah. is to try to, to understand what the genome can actually tell us about human biology. And, you know, I think it's important to stress that there are plenty of things that are not deterministic, right? Yeah. We, we can study the genome all we want and still not understand a cause and effect because that has to do with, with epigenetics or with just experience or with, you know, neural circuitry that is not hard coded in the genome. Yeah. So there are plenty of different behavioral or physical traits that cannot be linked deterministically to the genome, but there are plenty that are. Yeah. And I think what's, what's really interesting, um, is, you know, I think with more and more genomes being sequenced, people are doing really powerful computational studies now yeah. to try to learn more and more where you can start looking for statistically significant associations yeah. when you have enough genomes that can be analyzed together. Yeah, this is where the power of uh, computation and data collection really comes in, right? Where, where this problem of biology becomes a problem of number crunching. I mean, it's a simplification, but it's, it's, it goes in that direction. Yeah, you know, and I think... Um, You know, this is not really my area, but it's been very interesting to follow some of these major projects that are trying to sequence a thousand or a million people's genomes. Yeah. And, you know, there's a company, 23andMe, that's, I don't know how popular it is in Europe, but, you know, I think over a million people have now used this service. You can basically send them a saliva sample in the mail. They don't do genome sequencing. They do a different type of genetic analysis, but they basically can identify variants at thousands or hundreds of thousands of different regions across the genome. And they published a paper last year where they were able to use data from consumers to actually identify variants that are associated with being a morning person. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not to say that there's a single mutation that makes you a morning person or not a morning person. Most things like this, it's a statistically significant yeah. association or um, correlation, but it doesn't tell us an individual mutation that gives that effect. But nevertheless, um, you know, I think we're learning a lot more about the different types of variants that can be linked to a given trait. And this becomes possible when you have more and more data that can be analyzed. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think the, the fact that many parts of the genome affect many different things is, is like, it's not necessarily a problem for understanding behaviors because you can use statistics there. Um, like you just said, but if you are changing something in the genome in order to like 
impact one of these visible effects, like some illness or some something you don't like, um, then you might have side effects on other things. And their statistics doesn't help, right? Because the, the problem still happens. So Yeah, that's one thing that comes up a lot in thinking about the kind of the long-term effects if we were going to start editing certain yep. genes in the human organism is do we really understand the genome well enough to make changes and can we predict all the consequences yep. of those changes? And it's known that many genes are, are pleiotropic. They have you know, multiple effects, yep. not just, they're not just involved in one trait. Um, so I think that's something that always needs to be uh, kept in mind when you talk about making changes. Now, of course, for a disease-associated variant, something like sickle cell that we know almost the entire population has one version of the gene, people with this disease have a particular mutation. I think there'd be no risks there in eliminating that mutation because yep. that's known to, to cause that disease and it's known to not cause the disease if it's not mutated. Yep. Yep. But, um, but I think with some of these more complex traits, there's many cases where it's, it's not really clear what would be the full impact of making changes. Right. All right. So let's say we have our um, RNA um, somehow ordered from the internet. We uh, put that into some kind of chemical reaction thing. We'll talk about that in a moment, how this goes, how, how this is done like technically. So then our, our Cas9 system cuts DNA but cutting is not enough, right? I mean, usually we want to plug in something else. So how do we how do we supply the spare, the thing that goes in instead of the thing we we, we cut out? Right. So yeah, and, and it's good to get into this because you know CRISPR Cas9 is often you know it, it's the thing that allows us to do gene editing. Yeah. But the editing part is actually all happening using other enzymes. Ah. It's only the DNA cutting that Cas9 does, but like we talked about earlier, the breaking of the DNA is the trigger that stimulates this repair process. And actually a big hurdle in making gene editing a reality for something like therapeutics is still getting better control over the editing part. You know, using Cas9 to make the break is now working very well, but we still don't have complete control over how the repair works. And that's in large part because that relies on endogenous enzymes inside of the cell ah. and and you need the right ones for the the right kind of repair mm -hmm. so if you if you don't do anything special then what the cell will probably do is just reconnect the thing you just cut exactly so we actually yeah. think in most gene editing experiments um if you end up sequencing the cells that you edited some of them will not have any edits but those may be cells that still were targeted and cut in the genome by Cas9, but most often the cell will just take those broken ends and glue them back together and you never see a mutation pop yep. up. Yep. Now it turns out that often the cell will do that, but um, in a kind of sloppy way that leads to small amount of DNA bases or kind of those, those four building blocks, ATGC, some number of those will be either inserted or deleted before the two ends get glued back together. And that's because the, the most common type of repair of a break in the genome is error prone. So you get small deletions or insertions, which um, are actually sometimes great for editing experiments. If, for example, you want to use CRISPR as a tool to study a gene and those small deletions inactivate the gene. Mm -hmm. So it turns out because of the way that um, genetic information is expressed, we talked earlier about DNA goes to RNA, goes to protein. 
even a loss of a single letter in the DNA yeah. can prevent that DNA from ever being turned into a functional protein. Yeah, you so says you just disturb it randomly by cutting and then uh, imperfect repair happens and that destroys the original. And that basically leads to the gene no longer being yeah. expressed into a functional protein. Right. And if that happens to be a protein that maybe promotes a tumor from forming yeah. or maybe it's a mutated copy of a gene that is dangerous when it's expressed, but it's actually better to just shut off the gene altogether. Yeah. In this case, the kind of sloppy repair that you get by just using Cas9 to make a break and let the cell glue it back together in this error-prone fashion, that yep. can be quite successful and quite advantageous. Right. So what you're saying is that what I just asked is a relevant question, but even without inserting other stuff, just knocking things out is useful. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Mm -hmm. But then we can get to the second part, of your, or the, the original question, which is what about putting specific things in when you want to make a more precise change? Yep. And that is the kind of other branch of repair um, if you want to know the technical term, it's often called homology-directed repair. Mm -hmm. The details don't matter, um, <laughs> but there you basically combine Cas9 and the guide RNA together with a template for the repair. You might call that a donor template. It's the donor because it's the kind of the new sequence of DNA that yep. you're providing the cell to repair that break with. Mm -hmm. um, so this could be another fragment of double-stranded DNA. In some cases, it's actually very advantageous to utilize a retooled virus as a way of providing that donor template. But the simple idea is you combine Cas9 and the guide RNA with a replacement copy of DNA that the cell will now preferentially use to repair the break with such that at the end of all of this, you get a designed sequence of DNA added at the site that you targeted so that you can maybe repair a mutation, you can insert a new gene, yep. you can change a gene, you can make a very precise change that the experimentalist can design themselves. How do you make the cell preferentially use that uh, template you supply? Great question, um, and that's the topic of a lot of research efforts right now. Um, <laughs> And maybe it wasn't even good to use the word preferentially because to a large extent, this is still the bottleneck. Mm -hmm. A lot of uses of gene editing is that it's not typically the preferential mode of repair. Um, but people have investigated the use of drugs to try to bias the repair to be more of that and not the error-prone one. Mm -hmm. People have tried um, using CRISPR at different stages of the cell cycle. So the idea that If the break in the DNA happens at a particular point of when the cell is dividing and replicating its genome, there are certain stages of that process where one kind of repair works better than the other. Um, and then there are, there's been a lot of work on how to deliver the repair template. Do you deliver it as single-stranded DNA, double-stranded DNA, a closed piece of DNA versus a linear piece of DNA versus a viral vector? You know, a lot of different... Um, features can be played with and I think the field is getting better at this there's actually just a paper that came out a couple of days ago in nature on um, kind of the latest high efficiency method for accessing this type of gene insertion repair but that's something that's still being very actively investigated mm -hmm. so one thing I always have a hard time figuring or picturing in my mind is 
how do you how do you actually like do this as an experimenter? I mean, in the end, <laughs> I always have the impression in chemistry and biology, everything is about putting stuff into a, some kind of glass, mixing things and controlling the temperature and the pressure. And that's probably simplistic. <laughs> but <laughs> so, how, I mean, how do you how do you get your casts into those cells you're interested in? Let's say you want to cut something in a tumor or in some some you know specific place in 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 a, in a more complex system. How do you do this? And how do you how do you then supply these templates? Like, is it just about putting liquids into the same you know cylinder? I mean, how do you do this? Yeah, um, it doesn't probably look as exciting as we might want it to look. Well, <laughs> what what I've never done myself, but what I think probably looks as exciting as you might imagine is if you were micro injecting this as people have now done mm-hmm. in human embryos or mouse embryos. I mean, there you, you take a super fine glass needle that literally will puncture the embryo and you then deliver a small amount of liquid directly inside of the cell or the embryo that you might want to make a change to. Mm-hmm. Um, what's often done in kind of a, uh, standard gene editing experiment in cultured human cells is, yeah, you're putting together a formulation of, um, it could be the castine protein plus synthetic guide RNA that you order from the company. You might have them cloned inside of an expression vector. So basically a, a mini artificial chromosome mm-hmm. that you deliver that then the cell will take up and produce the protein from. Um, so depending on what way you deliver the molecules, you might have a different method of transfection, which is a technical term for delivering these things into eukaryotic cells. Mm-hmm. But the simplest one, you, you mix the, the DNA, the, the DNA encoding, the guide RNA and the protein together with a thing called lipofectamine. It's basically a, a chemical that will Uh, encapsulate the DNA in small grease balls Mm -hmm. and then you squirt that directly on top of the cells and the cells will naturally take up those grease balls by internalizing them Mm -hmm. and that delivers your mini chromosome encoding Cas9 and the guide RNA inside the cell that starts being churned out to make messenger RNA which makes the protein and now you have a protein that will get um, delivered into the nucleus. It'll use the guide RNA and make the cut in the DNA. And all of that, by the way, of course, you're not looking at any of that. That just happens, you know, you can't see any of that happening, but then you can use different analytical tools to infer the action of Cas9 by looking for those gene edits in the genome. Yeah. But then this is, I think, still a, let's say, statistical process, right? Not all cells will take this up. Not all will make the correct edit. So how reliable is this? And I'm not talking about we don't know, let's say, let's say we know how to deliver. You talked before about the complexities involved in delivering the template um, depending on, you know, what exactly you want to do. Let's say we know that for something. Let's say we understand a particular edit we want to make. We've done it before. How reliable is this? Is is it like every cell does it or is it a statistical process? It's not going to be 100%. You know, it's very typical that you might do an editing experiment on half a million cells. Mm -hmm. And then at the end of the experiment, let's say you use um, DNA sequencing to infer, to look for the presence of the edit. And you can use um, experiments to actually measure the, what we call the efficiency of the editing experiment, where you just count how many times do you see the gene with the 
the sequence before the experiment and how many times do you see the version of the gene that's been edited and you can just divide one to the other and that tells you basically yeah. the fraction of cells in your experiment that were successfully edited. Now, so that's one way where you could, you know, do the experiment. You don't select for edited cells. You just say how many of them got edited. Um, you could also take those cells and now sort them or mm -hmm. expand them clonally. Well, now you actually generate clonal populations. And now you can take what would be a heterogeneous mix of yeah. some cells that are edited, some that aren't. And you now you expand individual clones where now you have an entire population that started from one cell so all of them are edited the same way yeah. so that's one way that you can go from this initial heterogeneous mix to something very pure and defined um over time yeah so let me project a bit into the future let's say we are at this point where we understand this process precisely enough so we can use it in humans to do quote genetic repair right um so we we won't probably be able to like um, change the genome in all cells in a body in, in this way we are like wanting to change based on some edit we understand. We probably do this in some places. Like would we have to do this in, in embryos before all the cells replicate or how would this in a, in a far future work in practice theoretically? <laughs> yeah, so that's if we're talking about using this as a potential way to treat disease. Yeah. The question, so we talked about delivery thus far in terms of how to deliver the Cas9 molecule into the cell. Yeah. But when we talk about now treating a patient with a disease, now we're talking about the far greater challenge, which is delivering the formulation, the drug, if you want to call it a drug, into the body. And yeah. that's a, a huge challenge. Okay. And that's been a huge challenge for other forms of what we might call genetic medicine, like yeah. gene therapy, because that's a really tricky problem to solve. Um, you're right, we were made up of about, you know, the adult has something like 40 trillion cells in the body, and there's no way that you're going to even get a fraction of that. You know, you're going to start with just a tiny fraction that you might be able to access yeah. with some kind of delivery vehicle. It might be a, a retooled virus. It might be these mini artificial chromosomes we talked about. It might be some kind of protein RNA concoction that gets encapsulated in some way. But, you know, the, the focus of some of the major companies that are targeting genetic diseases right now are on therapies where, where this delivery problem has already been worked out in some ways, or at least um, they can kind of fall back on some methods that have already been vetted with previous medicine. Like, for example, going after diseases of the eye, like uh, blindness. Yeah. There, there's been gene therapy clinical trials where where things can be directly injected inside of the eye. Right. Yeah. There are diseases of the blood where you can think about editing blood stem cells um, and actually doing that in the laboratory because you can basically isolate them from the patient, do the editing in the laboratory, and then put those cells back into the body through the bloodstream. Yeah. So there, the delivery problem is is made easier by the fact that. Yeah. Even obviously, we're very good at, at taking blood out of patients, putting them back into patients, so yeah. you can kind of focus on those diseases for delivery. Okay, so in other words, it's not generalizable. It depends. I mean, I guess if you want to edit something in, in, certain, in, in some cells that only occur in specific places in the body to, because they have a particular function, then it's probably easier to target that. 
Um, exactly. Yeah. So, so like a blood disease, every yeah. cell in your body might have that mutation, but it really only manifests itself clinically in cells of the bloodstream. So that's where you might focus that therapeutic for other diseases. Like let's say for example, cystic fibrosis, again, every cell in a patient's body would have that mutation, but yeah. the clinical symptoms are, are mostly in the lungs. And so there you might target the delivery in a way that actually primarily would edit cells in the lungs or, or you know. So it's going to be really tailored to a particular disease where the disease has its primary effects and where cells need to be edited to try to ameliorate those those symptoms. Yeah. Have, have there been cases, like we talked about the accuracy before, um, you know, that not all cells might take up the CRISPR-Cas uh, system and, and actually do stuff. Does it happen that they do the wrong edits and maybe then doing harm, meaning uh, creating structures in the in the genome that are, well, I guess it's hard to distinguish between a bug and an actual problem, right? I mean, you never know what, what will happen. Yeah, I mean, this is a big concern is, you know, we've kind of simplified the problem thus far and just said, yeah, Cas9 works magically and it can edit. Yeah. Maybe it's not 100% efficient, but you can, you know, you can isolate the cells that are edited. But the, the concern is what about if it makes edits yeah. in other portions of the genome? And there's three billion bases of DNA to look through. And there are many, many sequences that will look very similar to the sequence in the gene you want to edit. So what's the risk that Cas9 will target and cut and then edit other genes that are unintended? So that's um, something that we often refer to as off-target effects. Mm -hmm. So it's not the target that's being edited, but an off-target. And um, one of the big areas of research on developing this tool, making it better and safer, is really reducing the off-target effects and really understanding at a very high level of detail the specificity of DNA recognition by the Cas9 enzyme. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so there have been some studies that have... Uh, I'd say there have been improvements in the tool. There have been some studies that, that have suggested that there are risks for this off-target editing. There was some recent papers that came out a few months ago about um, how edited cells might lead to a greater risk for cancer-causing mutations. Mm -hmm. So I think this is, for, for therapeutics, this is going to be a big um, area of concern is just the accuracy of the editing and ensuring that any off-target effects is below some threshold where it's it's not going to be a cause for concern. Yeah. Okay. Is it possible to edit many genes at once, like putting in a bunch of templates um, or a bunch of different RNAs to encode different places to cut? Yep. Um, I'd say harder to do with the templates in terms of multiplexing just the cutting. That's very possible. That's also something that was really hard before CRISPR because... Mm -hmm. It's hard to deliver many of those protein-based gene editors we talked about, the ZFNs and Talons. But with CRISPR, what's really nice is that you can use the same Cas9 protein, but just put in a bunch of different guide RNAs. Each one will, will target the Cas9 to a different portion of the genome. So multiplexing is very possible with, with Cas9. Um, that's been a really effective research tool because researchers can now interrogate the genome at a very high level of, of resolution using large libraries of different guide RNAs. 
Mm-hmm. And, and in theory, um, therapeutically, it could be possible to target multiple genes at the same time. But I think this multiplexing capability has been most useful for basic research thus far. Yeah. And that's one thing we've, we've kind of just scratched the surface on. But, I, you know, as exciting as it is to target diseases using CRISPR as a potential therapeutic, um, CRISPR has really made thus far its biggest impact in just giving biologists a far more powerful tool for understanding biology by editing genes right. whose function they might want to understand. Yeah, so to talk about this, because I was thinking about uh, one of the kind of next questions, it's obviously, I mean, it's, I don't even have to ask, right? It's not not ready for therapeutic use, right? Um, it, I mean, there are, there are clinical trials that have already started in China using CRISPR, and there will be clinical trials probably starting later this year in Europe. Okay. And in the US very soon as well. So I think it's getting to a point where we're going to hopefully see how well it's working for the first set of clinical trials. But yeah, I think it's going to re- realistically be years before we see any you know real successes as a therapeutic. But so then its use, its use as a therapeutic then is in locations where we talked before um, about this problem that one you know gene might affect various kinds of uh, have various effects and um, use the nice uh, uh, technical term which I already forgot again. Um, so we would probably we, we already know a couple of places where this is not the case, right? Where we know that one gene has one effect, and so in those places, it's conceivable that CRISPR-Cas9 editing is only a few years away. Right, right, yeah. So there's one type of cancer therapy where where it's actually those are the clinical trials that have already begun using CRISPR to edit immune cells to make them better at fighting mm-hmm. at, at basically fighting and, and destroying cancerous cells. Yeah, and then monogenic genetic diseases, diseases that Monogenic, have yeah. a very well understood mutation in a single gene that causes the disease. Those are the ones that are going to be likely targeted first yeah. um, using CRISPR for genetic disease. But yeah, I think coming back to where has CRISPR already made its impact, it's really in the research world. Yeah. And if you now go to a, you know, a, a campus that's doing any kind of biomedical research, you know, you're going to see plenty of talks that mention CRISPR, not for therapeutics, but for actually making genetic changes to a type of cell or a type of organism as a way to better understand the role of the gene that's been edited in some type of process, biological pathway. Yeah. So so the, the research that is addressed is, is basic research. It's understanding what genomes do. And for, for, and for doing that, you make edits and see then, let's say, whether if you do an edit to a gene, whether an effect goes away. And then you know that this gene caused that effect. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so we can even go back to this funny study about genetic variants involved in whether or not you're a morning person. Mm-hmm. So obviously, we're not going to do that experiment on humans. But let's say... <laughs> There were cultured human cells that, and you had some way of culturing them, and you could see the way they respond to light and dark, and you wanted to now test what those different variants are actually doing. What you could actually do now is use CRISPR, copy those variants that we know some individuals have, and then run experiments to see how the cells are impacted. So we can take information from DNA sequencing and now design experiments to precisely test the consequences of having one variant or a different variant. And that's, of course, great for research on on human biology, but it's also been really promising for all different kinds of model organisms where previously making genetic changes was very difficult. Now with CRISPR, 
you know, most species can be turned into model organisms now. So there are studies looking at the impact of different genes in the wing coloration of butterflies mm -hmm. by using CRISPR to make genetic changes and then see how the wing coloration is impacted. There's a woman at Stanford that's studying a particular type of fish that's a model organism for looking at aging. And now CRISPR is allowing them to do completely new types of experiments that weren't possible before by editing genes and seeing how they impact the aging and the lifespan of these fish. People are looking at limb regeneration in salamanders using CRISPR to probe the functions of different genes. So it's kind of like now you have a way that any question where previously you might have been looking for correlations or you might have been yeah. you know, sequencing different strains and seeing, well, we can make some comparative analyses of how their genomes differ and infer what impact that might have. Now you can actually go in and do the exact experiment you'd want using CRISPR to, to copy those mutations and see the exact impact. Yeah. And there it doesn't necessarily matter if it's not totally reliable and, you know, statistically 100% because if it doesn't work, you just try again. <laughs> exactly. So there's that. I mean, you can just brute force it. Yeah. Um, you can do this, uh, you know, clonal selection we talked about yeah. where even if it's not 100%, you just get the cells that were edited. You know, so something that's, let's say you're, you're using CRISPR to make gene-edited mice. Um, that's fine if only one out of the five pups that are born um, have to edit because then you can use breeding to do the rest and you yeah. end up with exactly the edited animals you want and the other ones don't have to edit but you don't have to study them. In some sense, um, it is... I mean, you know, breeding has always been a way to make genetic modifications, but it takes forever. And so, if you will, gene editing speeds this up, right? That's the way of looking at it. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, there were previous methods for making genetically engineered mice. Yeah. CRISPR just makes it way, way easier. Yeah. Um, and in agriculture, I mean, this is something that's going to be very interesting to follow in the U.S., in Europe, and elsewhere is, is how gene-edited plants or animals that might be f intended for human consumption, how they're going to be regulated. Because in many cases, the kinds of edits that, um, that companies are interested in making are not going to be any different than what they could accomplish with breeding. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just that breeding would be so inefficient or would take so long that why not just do it with CRISPR instead? Yeah. So you're hinting at... Um more or less not-so-rational fears of gene editing um, to achieve things that... I mean, breeding also isn't 100% reliable and totally selective, right? Breeding is, is... I mean, a lot of previous methods for breeding and how to increase genetic variation is using a whole lot of DNA mutations in a yeah. completely... Irra unra in, I guess not irrational... But it's not rational. It's not, it's not designed. Controlled. It's yeah. just yeah. it's not controlled yet. You just make a whole lot of random mutations, and then you just plant a lot of seeds, and you see what grows the best. Yeah. So it's it's been very common in agriculture to use things like chemicals or radiation, X-rays, uh, different kind of radioactive compounds to intentionally cause random mutation, and then you just find out what yields the the biggest fruit or the you yeah. know best tasting tomato. Um, so in some sense, compared to that, CRISPR is making very specific mutations in a way that we already understand the impact and we already understand why we want to make it. It's just a different way of introducing the mutation yeah. 
in a targeted, rational fashion. Have we seen, um, let's say, objection to using um, this kind of tool for, you know, for animals or for stuff we eat because of this more or less irrational fear of this mechanism as opposed to using a more natural breeding-based approach? Yeah, you know, I've, I've read a handful of, I mean, there's certainly some activist groups like Greenpeace that are, um, I think, as wary of gene editing as they are of other types of genetic modification, the kinds of um, things we, are th we might think of when we say GMO, where you might have a, a, a gene from a different species yeah. integrated into the genome. Um, you know, I think these are distinct in the sense that the kind of change you make into the genome is, could be very different if you're using CRISPR than if you're doing gene splicing. Um, if you're objecting to the use of biotechnology, then I'd say they're both similar because both use biotechnology. Yeah. I don't think that's any less safe than using random mutations and breeding because, uh, you know, we've been changing the genomes of plants and animals since the beginning of modern agriculture. Yeah. And I don't think CRISPR is any more invasive than methods that are 50 or 100 years old. But, you know, I think there's as much concern with, with CRISPR as there may, might be over GMO. And yeah. it's going to be very interesting to see not just how some of these groups respond to what, you know, some companies are trying to say is a safer version of genetic engineering. But I think it's going to be really interesting to see how regulators um, see these kinds of products. And yeah. so just earlier this year, um, the U.S. Department of Agriculture uh, put out a statement where they uh, said that products that are created through gene editing that could have been created using natural breeding will not be regulated any differently than you know, products mm -hmm. generated through yep. breeding. So, yep. so as long as there's no changes made that are kind of would only be possible with genetic engineering. They are yeah. not going to be regulated as GMO. Right. Okay. So, I, and I, I don't know how it's playing out in Europe right now, but I think it's going to be a very interesting area to, to follow yeah. closely. I mean, one thing that, that could be used as an objection here, sometimes, you know, you, you just said before that uh, using CRISPR-Cas, it's much easier. You can do uh, changes and experiments much, much, much faster. And so, you know, this argument that, um, you know, um, Facebook and social media aren't a problem because there has been hate before the internet. And then other people say, well, yeah, but it, this, the, the fact that you can spread it so quickly and that it has this, you know, you can reach so many people makes it qualitatively different, even though the thing itself has existed forever. And so one could, could argue that with CRISPR-Cas, you can do the edit so quickly that um, it now becomes a much bigger problem than if somebody on some farm uses, you know, five generations of humans to optimize their whatever crop. Yeah. <laughs> Not convinced. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, thinking of, I'm thinking it over. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, one could maybe argue that if you speed up the process, maybe we won't have enough time to learn the full consequences of, of a given type of edit that you've made if you don't let the natural longer breeding process tell you that there's issues but you know i think the bar right now for what makes a good crop is how well does it taste and yeah. how well does it grow and i think people are going to continue to use those as the kind of criteria for for what we want to continue producing yeah. for 
for consumption. But yeah, I, I, I think you make a reasonable point. Maybe that's a little more relevant for these kinds of ethical discussions about using gene editing in the context of, of humans and especially in, you know, potentially the germline where you might make permanent changes to the genome in embryos, for example. I think there yeah. I'd be more receptive to this idea that, you know, you're trying to speed up a process that, that maybe it's better to not speed up. Yeah. Yeah. So CRISPR can be applied to all organisms, right? Because you can have it work on any kind of cell as long as you get it in contact with that cell. I mean, I have not heard of any cases where Cas9 or, you know, it's unable to introduce edits, yeah. provided, like you said, those cells are cells that can be worked with in a laboratory. Yeah, um, okay. But yeah, this Cas9 enzyme, in terms of its ability to locate and introduce breaks in DNA, it seems to work remarkably well in eukaryotic cells. And so, you know, by the time you make your way into a cell, if there's a way to get inside the cell, the inside of a cell in terms of how the DNA looks is not going to be that different between different organisms. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's been remarkably flexible um, in a wide variety of different types of cells mm -hmm. and organisms. And it also works on stem cells, I suppose. So um, if you do that, you can kind of impact a whole organism as it grows, right? Yes. So certainly there have been gene-edited mice, gene-edited monkeys, where it's, where it's introduced into either embryonic stem cells or directly into the one-cell embryo. Yeah. Um, and as I alluded to earlier, people have now done these experiments in human embryos as well. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's some questions about efficiency, and then that's something that's being worked on regardless of what cell type you're in. But, yeah, people have shown that you can achieve pretty high efficiency editing in human embryos as well. Isn't that, I mean, I'm surprised that human embryo editing is, is allowed. Um, aren't there any ethical? I mean, I'm sure they are. So, <laughs> Well, it's, it's not allowed in Germany. I know that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in the U.S., you're not able to use any federal funding to carry out research that would involve the genetic modification of embryos. Mm -hmm. So in the U.S., this would require um, the research be funded through other means, but there's nothing um, preventing experiments on embryos otherwise. Uh, and I believe in other countries, um, that's pretty similar. Of course, you would not be allowed to use this to actually generate a pregnancy. Oh, so you right. couldn't. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. So I should say these these are all you know experiments done in embryos, but the embryos are are just used to test the editing. Right. They're never implanted, and they don't grow past the five-day stage. Okay. My understanding is that even in Germany, there's you're not allowed to do these kinds of experiments, even just for research purposes in embryos. But in the U.S., you can do it legally in embryos, but if you wanted to establish a pregnancy, that would have to be reviewed by the FDA because right. there the use of CRISPR would be a drug and any drug needs to be yeah. to go through a formal clinical trial and an yeah. FDA approval process. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm sure it, there has been a time in Germany where this has not been legal. I do remember these discussions. I haven't followed it, so I don't know if this has changed. I Probably not, but I don't know. Uh -huh. um, so there has been a, a whole controversy, um, or maybe, I don't know if it's a controversy, but there was a lot of discussion about patenting um, this whole thing. Um, and uh, of course you can say CRISPR you can't patent CRISPR because that's something that occurs naturally that's where we started um, what's your perspective on this what's the state of patenting there in biology in general uh, 
I'm not a great person to make general comments about the state of patenting. <laughs> okay. um, I mean, certainly things that are found in nature are not patentable. Yep. But with CRISPR, I mean, there are various changes you're making when you deliver it into cells. Um, so there's a, a very complex intellectual property landscape surrounding CRISPR technology. There's been dozens, if not hundreds, of applications filed. There is an ongoing um, patent dispute between the Broad Institute and Jennifer Down at UC Berkeley, Emmanuel Charpentier, University of Vienna, in some of the foundational work on CRISPR-Cas9 mm -hmm. um, that's not yet fully resolved. So yeah, obviously a lot of companies and a lot of universities are very excited about um, pursuing intellectual property surrounding CRISPR. That's not really my area of expertise, though, nor really my area of interest, to be honest. Okay, yeah. Well, I mean, the, what, what, the way I understood it very roughly is obviously, as you said, you can't patent what occurs in nature. But what you can patent is techniques and approaches that you use in the lab, right? That, that is probably also obvious. Um, and so then the question, I guess, one, one important question is, to what degree are things happening based on natural processes and to what degree is it based on your own lab process? And I guess that's, that's part of the discussion there, I guess. And I asked you before what you do in the lab to actually make edits with CRISPR-Cas and you, you alluded to the fact that although the basic mechanism is kind of automatic and natural, there is lots of details you have to control to make it reliable and to do what you specifically want it to do. And I, I could imagine that that's an area where patents can plausibly be applied yeah exactly on different ways to impact the repair outcome yeah um what how you deliver the donor template how that's designed how yeah. you introduce the material into cells and then certainly one once you start talking about therapeutics the particular way that you might deliver a drug into the body i mean these are all things that if you're in the industry these are going to be ripe areas for for innovation and for intellectual property generation yeah so what is it that you are working on specifically? You mentioned at the beginning it's not Cas9, it's other Cases. <laughs> yeah, so I'm actually, I mean, we're, we're doing some genome engineering stuff in my laboratory. Um, so we're still dabbling in some of these tools that use Cas9 or other kinds of enzymes. But yeah, what I think is really exciting coming back to the first half of our conversation is um, the fact that these immune systems in bacteria are far more diverse than just Cas9. And when we start talking about the tool space, I think, you know, there's a lot more to play with than just Cas9. And there are all those other Cas enzymes we talked about, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and more, that I think we still don't understand very well. So first of all, how do they work in bacteria? How are they working for protecting and defending against virus infection? And then are there any other kinds of, of enzymes that we can harness for gene editing or other kinds of, uh, of new technologies? So I could go into more details, but I think that's, that's one of the general areas that I'm very interested in exploring is some of these new immune system subtypes. So, but but you, you, I mean... How are they? I mean, it's probably exactly what you're researching. But 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 how are how is another cast different? I mean, it's another enzyme, okay. And so if if you say what it how it how it works, I mean, you, you're suggesting it doesn't it doesn't cut, or I mean, how how could it presumably do something else than Cas9? I I don't understand like the the space sure. of possibilities here. 
Well, so I'll give you two examples. Yeah. Um, and both of them have now gone on to be the foundation of completely new kinds of technologies that are from the same CRISPR space, but totally different from Cas9. Mm-hmm. Actually, I could give you three examples, but let me start with the first two, and then we can see about the third one. Yeah. So we can talk about an enzyme called Cas13. Cas13 is part of CRISPR immune systems that don't actually target DNA at all. They target RNA. Mm-hmm. So we talked about RNA earlier, DNA's molecular cousin. Yep. Um, it turns out that a bunch of viruses have RNA as their genetic material, and there are CRISPR systems that have evolved to be able to defend against those viruses by targeting RNA instead of DNA. Okay. And Cas13, mm-hmm. on a very simple level, is kind of like Cas9, but instead of using the guide RNA to target and cut DNA, it uses a guide RNA to target and cut RNA. So you can edit cells who, for whatever reason, use RNA to encode their information. So that's that's been invented. Um, the first way that it was used as a technology was just to um, degrade RNAs. Okay, yeah. And that's actually a very powerful technology. If you don't want to make permanent changes to the genome, but you'd like ah. to just make a more kind of temporary change yep. to the RNA intermediary between DNA and protein. Yep. So, um, you know, maybe you don't want to make a genetic change. You just want to transiently remove some pathogenic RNA. Or again, coming back to the to the research field, maybe you want to study the impact of a given gene by clearing out all the RNA that the gene was copied into before making protein. Yeah, yeah. So that that entire tool space was only possible by going back to CRISPR-Cas biology and exploring some of these other enzymes. And that led to the discovery that, in fact, this entire new type of CRISPR system uses guide RNAs to target RNA, not DNA. Mm -hmm. That's one example. Um, And that has actually also been used for completely new technology in which you use that for um, diagnostics to actually detect the presence of particular RNA sequences in patient samples like blood samples. And that technology, one lab calls it Sherlock. There's a kind of competing technology called Detector. But both of these different um, tools have now been used to actually detect Zika virus in blood samples Mm -hmm. where you wouldn't be doing any engineering inside of cells. You would actually be taking a biopsy from a patient. You might look for the presence of a given pathogen by looking for that particular RNA or DNA sequence in the path in the in the biopsy, and that could form the basis of a new type of diagnostic point of care system. So that's mm-hmm. that's one thing that also came out of this this new research into CRISPR-Cas biology. So I think you know the point is that there's a lot of different enzymes. Some of them target RNA, some target DNA, some target DNA in different ways. Some bind to DNA, so they they attach themselves to specific DNA sequences but don't cut. And that turns out to be a very powerful technology as well. So I think the big picture here is that there's a lot of diversity in CRISPR. And some of these um, other tools that we might think about developing won't come from Cas9. They'll come from some of these other flavors of enzymes. And the reason why Cas9 did the big splash in, in the media was because this was the first one that that was understood in this way, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, it could turn out to be one of the best ones for gene editing. Yeah. But there's another enzyme called Cas12, and Cas12 turns out to be very effective at gene editing as well. 
I don't know if I would say better, but maybe as good. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just at a conference a few weeks ago, and it may be more specific than Cast9. Mm-hmm. So, again, when you're talking about bringing this to the clinic, small differences in efficiency and specificity in how big the protein is, maybe something that can do gene editing but be half the size mm-hmm. would be advantageous because it's easier to deliver into the body. You know, all of these things could make a yeah. big difference. And so it never hurts to expand the tool space and have as many different ways to do gene editing as possible so yeah. that you can pick the best one. Do you have any hunch of, um, and I know that's totally uh, a not very scientific question to ask, but do you have any hunch when you know when i asked the fusion guys you know when fusion will be ready it's always this joke you know it's going to be in 20 years or 50 whatever and this has been the case forever um, yeah. <laughs> do, do you have like any hunch when this is going to be actually like practical in the sense that it's you know you it's you do this gene editing as part of therapies like you take you know today's medicines I mean, do, do, do. I mean, it's not going to be that broadly applicable, I guess, as penicillin, but but still, I mean, do you have a feeling for that? Yeah. Um, I mean, not <laughs> informed any more than, you know, better would be to talk with someone that's involved in therapeutic development in one of these companies. But yeah, yeah. I, I, I think a lot of the news stories inflate the hype Yes, um, and maybe also the hope around this new version of treating disease, this new way of yes. treating disease. Because the truth is, it's we're talking mo- many years before the first clinical trials yeah. may yield an actual type of medicine. But that's going to be for a very specific yeah. disease indication. And so, you know, it's not like all genetic diseases are going to melt away by the end of yeah. 2020. You know, it's it's going to be. Many years until we know how effective CRISPR is in a very particular disease indication. And then it really comes down to the delivery problem because I think yeah. it's it, it will be possible to make edits at a very high efficiency in cultured human cells. I mean, that's already possible now. But delivering it into the body and t- tackling diseases where, you know, if, let's say a, a neurological disease Getting CRISPR into an adult brain, that's going to be a major, major effort, and it's going to yeah. be very, very hard. And I think yeah. you know, there's a lot of diseases that, even though we know the genetic basis, it's going to be many, many years until we can think about any yeah. kind of a, a therapeutic being available. Yeah. I mean, there's – just to, to conclude, sometimes – I mean, I'm sure you're totally aware of this – People talk about this personalized medicine, right, where you get the specific medicine that's based on your particular – genomic setup or other um, very individual things. And of course, that means that you have to manufacture a particular medicine drug specifically for a particular person. And so that, of course, is a lot of overhead and a lot of effort. And of course, these systems are all complex in the, in the, in the formal definition of the word, right? So it's hard to predict interactions. But then on the other hand, um, people say, well, it's getting a more and more computational science. So doing these things will become easier and easier because it's just about number crunching, which becomes free and is free and it's cheap and, and, and anyway. So I wonder, you know, how these two forces will balance. Like more and more effort to individualize, but that effort's going to be more and more simplified because it's all computational. And so I have no feeling how this is going to be balanced. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think for the personalized medicine, I mean, there's, yeah, I mean, individualized therapeutics, I could imagine would be so expensive as to probably be prohibitive. Yeah. Um, that's one reason why for, for the case of cancer immunotherapy, um, you know, one way that you could do this is by editing a patient's own cells. Yeah. But if now every patient with cancer needs to basically have yeah. blood stem cells or T cells isolated from them yeah. individually, those are edited for each patient separately. That's going to be a very expensive treatment and yeah. really hard to make available broadly. Yeah. But people are now exploring ways to edit T cells in a way that would also avoid any graft versus host rejection. So you don't mm -hmm. have to deal with this problem of immunocompatibility between your donor who donates the cells and the recipient who might have cancer and receive the genetically engineered cells. So, you know, I think that's one way where hopefully more innovation is going to help make this type of treatment broadly available, where now you'd have an off-the-shelf product yeah. that could be made on a very large scale and be used for mm -hmm. many different patients regardless of their immune type. Right, 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 and and also uh, just to um, um, I mean, this whole delivery problem that you just uh, talked about has nothing to do with number crunching, right? So this is also a very real issue that needs to be addressed. Yeah, I think the yeah the computational side I think is maybe a little bit less. I mean that's great for understanding yeah. the genome better and right. for different cancers. I mean I think the you know there's idea that many. Different cancers will be treated in different ways if we can understand the full complement of mutations that characterize an individual's cancer. But I think the real holy grail here for, for something like cancer would be a broadly useful yeah. type of therapy that, um, you know, maybe you choose a different version for a, a given person's cancer type, but I don't think you could really bring therapeutic development for each person individually. I think yeah. that's just not going to be viable. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's what I think as well. Yeah. All right. So, anything else you want to add as we as we uh, conclude this conversation? Any wise words at the end? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, I think it's a really exciting time. And you know, I was actually just uh, messaging with a friend of mine who I used to work with that what I get really excited by is is coming back to you know mining mining nature for new kinds of biology that mm -hmm. are interesting in and of themselves like CRISPR biology mm -hmm. but might be the source for new tools and I think you know CRISPR is one area that's been remarkably powerful for technology development but you know microbes and non-microbes I think there's a lot more that we don't understand about how defense systems work and there's going to be a lot more to draw from that might come from the CRISPR world but might come from outside of the CRISPR world too. Yeah. So I think for me, that's where I get excited. Positioning myself is kind of probing deeper and deeper into the biology of some of these microbes and continually thinking about how we can use these things we're discovering for building different kinds of tools. And it could be gene editing. It could be different kinds of tools altogether. But but I think there's there's still plenty to do there. So when you look at your personal impact on the field, are you happy if you understand how nature works, or do you want to um, like be involved in like using that to uh, for the betterment of humanity, right? <laughs> to to build tools. Yeah, that's a 
Good question that I ask myself a lot, and I yeah. ask myself a lot when I think about um, how will I position my lab and, and sell my lab when it comes to giving talks yeah. and writing grant applications. And, um, you know, I've always seen myself a bit as a basic kind of pure science yeah. um, researcher. I'm, I love exploring interesting intellectual questions, but it is, it's important, I think, to do applied science as well. And, um, that's why I've loved working on CRISPR because when I started my PhD, I think it just was interesting to me and yeah. I didn't have a whole lot of importance around making sure what I was doing was useful because I was also just learning how to be a good scientist. And I thought for that purpose, it's just a fascinating research question, but I feel very fortunate that that work intersected with a very powerful and useful technology. Yeah. And I think it's important for my own day-to-day motivation to not just think about interesting esoteric questions, but also make sure that what we're studying um, has the chance to improve our society or improve the kinds of tools that other researchers would use. Yeah. So I'm not going to be the one myself probably developing any kinds of therapeutics, but if I can help build tools that others will use or try using for that purpose, I think that would that would be a, a good success. So yeah. I think that's that's kind of where I see myself is both exploring the basic biology and, and asking interesting questions, but also making sure that what we learn is not going to just be advancing our knowledge, but also advancing our technologies. Yeah. yeah I, I saw on your website that you're, that you're working on a book on this stuff, right? Well, we actually published one. Um, it came out last year, last June. And that was a really fun project I worked on with Jennifer. Um, you know, I love being in the laboratory. I, I love doing research. That's my passion. But I think with with the CRISPR technology and the CRISPR discovery, um, it's. I thought this is just a fantastic story that needs to be told. And obviously, there's a lot of there are a lot of other journalists that are yeah. writing equally incredible stories every day now. But you know, when we first came up with the idea for the book, that was before CRISPR had really become a, a household term. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we wrote a book called A Crack in Creation, where we talk about how the um, biology came about. So understanding CRISPR systems and then importantly, how the technology was invented and some of the different ramifications it's going to have on society, whether for for agriculture, for therapeutics. And then, of course, this very controversial question over changing the human genome in yeah. a heritable way by, by introducing CRISPR into embryos. Yeah, yeah. I'll definitely, obviously, link to your to your website and also specifically to the book so people can follow up if they're interested. Cool. All right, then. Thank you very much. I thought this was very. You're a very um, a very dense and structured uh, talker. That's that's very very good. I really like this. It's uh, it's very lot of information in in a short amount of time. Thank you very much. <laughs> Is that? I- Dense doesn't sound like a good attribute, but hopefully no, no, no. it's dense I meant in it, a good way for you. No, I, I absolutely meant it in a, as a positive attribute. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, you were uh, – of the podcasts I've done, you also had great questions and it was fun. You clearly understand the science. And actually, I, if you have any other interesting analogies with uh, computer science, I mean, is that your background then? <laughs> yes. Uh, not specifically antivirus or something, but I'm a software engineer. Um, and the, the, since software is so abstract, we always try to find analogies in bridge building or, or biology or something. Yeah, Most yeah. of them are really weird, um, but yeah. <laughs> because I think the analogies are great, and you know, I haven't. I mean, since I'm done with the book and now trying to actually do science, I don't. 
spend too much time thinking about that kind of stuff anymore. But yeah. I, um, I'm always looking for good analogies and I use this Microsoft word find and replace thing all the time, which is <laughs> boring now to talk about. Yeah. But, um, but I like the idea of, of an analogy for CRISPR, the, the immune defense system yeah. with antivirus. That's, that's a good one. I mean, traditional antivirus systems literally stored the signatures of stuff they wanted to find. Um, of course, then the, the malware evolved and now they, some of them are more behavioral, like they're looking at effects of what bad software does and trying to identify malware through this way. I don't know what the analogy would be in biology there. Yeah, well, the cool <laughs> thing there is that in the last few years, there's been the discovery of virally encoded inhibitors of mm -hmm. CRISPR systems. Mm -hmm. So just like the malware, I mean, viruses has, have also evolved ways to evade CRISPR systems. So okay. it's, it's a really nice example of this, you know, evolutionary warfare between host yeah. and pathogen. And they both invented countless ways to destroy or evade the other. So it's, it's wow. that's, I think, why it's a big source for tool development is because you're kind of harnessing systems that have been under intense evolutionary pressure yeah. so yeah cool stuff all right marcus well thanks thank for, you very much for, for organizing and well, making the time and i'll look forward to the to final product okay cool thanks okay Ciao. Bye -bye. all right that's it thank you very much as usual for listening and thank you very much sam for being a guest on the show I definitely learned a lot, and uh, that's always a good sign. <laughs> so thank you very much. Um, one more thing that I probably should have mentioned at the beginning, because probably nobody's listening to this here. Um, our birthday thing on October 20th is actually sold out. So uh, we had a slightly slow start in terms of ticket sales, as you could probably tell from my slightly panicking uh, <laughs> tweets and social media posts. Uh, but it turned out well, so I'm sure it's going to be a cool... Uh, thing um it'll be in german so most of you probably don't necessarily uh, if you only speak english care but i still thought it's worth mentioning all right so that's all i've had to say today um i guess talk to you in around two weeks ciao Hello, Markus here for Omega Tau. Omega Tau is an independent and non-commercial podcast produced by Nora Ludwig and me, Markus Fötter. We are on the web at omegataupodcast.net. You can also find us on Facebook, Google+, and Twitter under the handle Omega Tau Podcast. We love to hear from you through a comment on the website, a post via our social network channels, or via an email at feedback at omegataupodcast.net. We also always appreciate recommendations of Omega Tau to your friends directly or through social media. Omega Tau is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Non-Derivative License 3.0. This means that you can freely share the content, but you cannot use it for commercial purposes and you cannot distribute derivative works. You always have to attribute the source, omegataupodcast.net. Any quotations or citations of our work are perfectly fine, of course. For more details on the license, see creativecommons.org. Thank you for listening to this episode of our podcast and talk to you next time. 